So, we are in a series on the church at the moment. For the last probably couple of months, we've been looking at different ways the Bible talks about the church. What is the church? Different illustrations used um, to help us understand the depth, the layers, the riches of what it means to be God's uh, people. And today's title is perhaps a little bit uh, unusual for some of you. It might be a, a phrase that you're not familiar with, and it's one new man in Christ. This is a phrase you will only find once in the Bible, and we will look at that in a little bit later. Um, but it's a phrase that sums up a very, very important and central theme concerning what the church is. But in order to help you guys understand that and to really grasp it in its full, full picture, we've got to go right back to the beginning. And we've got to just track through the Old Testament a little bit, because if you don't understand the Old Testament, you won't understand the New Testament. Okay? So an understanding of what happened before Jesus came, the various narratives, stories, the various symbols, um, the big moments in the history of God's people help us to really understand the full meaning of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Without that, to be honest, we're kind of clutching at straws, creating our own meaning for the symbols rather than understanding. They're all rooted in the Old Testament. We understand what they are, if you understand that. So I want to take us back, first of all. We're not gonna, I'm going to just tell you some Old Testament stories. We're not going to read through it. It'll take too long, but tell you some Old Testament stories. You can look them up. Um, when you get home, if you want to go into it in more depth. But we're going to start with Adam and Eve, whom God made a covenant with them. And that word covenant is a really important word. Sounds a bit old-fashioned um, these days. It basically means a covenant is an agreement, a solemn agreement between two parties. Now, the actual, the actual word is, is rooted in the word to cut. And the reason why is because, is because most of the time when there was a covenant, you would, it would involve the death of something. Something would be cut. Something would be killed. Blood would be shed. And the idea behind that was that it was showing the earnestness of this agreement. This isn't just a casual thing. Let's have a casual agreement. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, you'll do that. This is more serious. It's a, it's a big commitment. And it involves the cutting, the death of something or the other, or, or some sort of bloodshed. And any of you are, uh, anyone, any Western, Western fans in the church? Anyone enjoy a good Western film? Me and Davina. Okay, cool. Dave, great. Thanks, man. Um, you guys don't know what you're missing. <clears throat> but sometimes what you find in these films is that people will make grave covenants, grave oaths together, and they will, they'll get their knife and they'll, they'll, they'll cut their hand, the other one cut their hand, and they'll, and they'll, and they'll shake hands together. That's the kind of image of something to do with, that's come from this idea. It's a solemn agreement. Blood's been spilt. And, um, and, so, and so the first covenant is different from that. The covenant with Adam and Eve, interesting, or with, that God makes with Adam in Genesis 2, is a covenant that, that in the making of it doesn't involve death, but in the breaking of it will. God says to Adam, you can do whatever you like. And it's really important you understand this because very often people have a picture in their mind of a God who is looking to spoil the fun, essentially. But actually God says to Adam, you can do what you like. Eat from whatever tree you like. You're free. God's posture is one of permissiveness, not trying to restrain things. His natural posture is to let us, um, let us do lots of things and have uh, lots of joy and create and all of that. He says there's just one thing you can't do. It's just one prohibition. There's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that because in, in the day you do, you will surely die. 
So there, is a, there, there will be death, but in the breaking of the covenant. So Adam and Eve have, are in this relationship with one another, this relationship with God. It's a covenant relationship, which means that there's been a serious agreement about something. There's consequences if, it, if, if, if either party goes back on what they've agreed. And we know from the story, you'll find it in Genesis 3, that the tempter comes and he begins to tell lies to them about God in a very persuasive, convincing way. And persuades, deceive, he deceives, the tempter deceives Eve. She eats the fruit. The man is there the whole time. He lets it happen and then he joins her in the eating of the fruit. And then God comes to find them. They run from God because they're suddenly aware they're naked. They're afraid of God's presence. They run from God and God finds them. And he says, what have you done? He knows what they've done, but he holds them to account. What have you done? He says, have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat? And there's this painful, painful situation where God has, out of his righteousness, has to bring judgment as he said he would do. And they, are, they, are, they come under God's judgment in that sense. Something goes wrong. Something goes badly wrong. <clears throat> Genesis 3. It's no coincidence that in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve's offspring, Cain and Abel, find themselves in a situation where they both bring an offering to God. God has regard for Abel's offering, doesn't have regard for Cain's offering. Cain's head goes down. Cain's uh, envy begins to grow and resentment. And then when he thinks no one's looking, he kills his very brother. He kills his, sheds his brother's blood in the field, kills him. And uh, what, you te- what you find is this, that once things start going wrong in terms of covenant with God, things start going wrong in terms of relationships with one another. It's a very, very important biblical point to understand. There's a, there's a vertical relationship with God, which if that goes out of kilter, the horizontal relationships with one another start to go wrong. So Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Genesis 7, this pretty gross guy called Lamech, who is our, our first example of a polygamous man in the Bible. He's a vengeful, violent man. He, start, he says, if you hurt me, I'll kill you. If you, if you um, what does he say? He says, it's, it's an awful thing. I want to make sure I get it right so that I'm not misquoting Genesis. It's a picture of what's beginning to unfold. He says, he says to his wives, he says, listen to my voice. Give heed to my speech. I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And what you find is that there's this, there's this horrible, ugly, violent, divisive scenario growing in the earth to the extent that a couple of chapters later, God, the Bible says that the whole earth is filled with violence. There's destruction and violence that are, that, are, that are happening between people, which leads to the flood and for Noah. So I want to make one point, and then I want to make another point, and then they're going to carry us through to the point of the sermon. Point number one, when, when, it, when relationship with God breaks down, relationship with one another breaks down. There's something, that, there's something about our relationship with God that secures and makes safe our relationships with one another. After the flood, something different happens, but in a funny sort of way, equally bad. Noah and his descendants come off the ark and they're, they're, sent, they're, scat, they're sent to fill the earth as Adam and Eve were and to fill it with, 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 with the image of God. Some people decide not to. They decide rather than scatter, they want to gather. They find safety in numbers and they, and they, and they settle on the plain of Shinar and they build this tower, the tower that we now know of, the Tower of Babel. And what they do is, is that they are not a divided people, they're a united people, actually. But they are not united under God, they're united under themselves. 
And so they said, let's build a tower and make a name for ourselves. Let's, let's make a reputation for ourselves through building this tower and our fame will go across the whole earth. And God comes and looks at it. And you know what God does? Rather than saying, well done, you're not arguing with one another, you're not killing each other. God says, we're going we're to deal with this situation. This, this is an equally bad situation. Why? Because the banner that they are gathered under has got no reference to the one who made them. They've gathered together, but it's got no reference to God. They gather together under their own banner, if you like, under their, we can do it together. Together, we can, we can be all that we are supposed to be together under our own power. And God comes and he deals with it and he, he confuses their language and the building of the tower stops that very day. Two very different situations, violence and killing each other, uh, wrong. Unity but with no reference at all to the one who gave them life and who sustains their life. Wrong. And as we track through today's message on one new man in Christ, I think you're going to see, and I'm going to help us to discern how we see these very things playing out even in life today and making sure that we don't fall foul of it, but that we remain in a place of um, spiritual discernment. So let's pray together. Father, I pray now that as we track this theme through your word, I pray you'd open the eyes of our heart, I pray, Lord, that you would really help us to grow in discernment and understanding as a people. And that, Lord, we would not be those who are easily duped. We would not be those who are easily led astray. We would not be those who are easily, uh, easily taken for a ride. But that, Lord, we would really understand what is your purpose at the centre of your purpose. And that we would find our hearts gathering to that with all that we are, with all of our passion and all of our might, Lord, into the place of true fruitfulness. I commit this to you, Holy Spirit, I pray, breathe on our time together, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what you then find through the rest of the Old Testament is, is moments or people that God chooses and he makes promises to, and yet it, those promises, they never quite fulfill in the way you would hope they would fulfill so for example he chooses Abraham and he makes this great promise to Abraham he says he says I'm going to bless I'm going to bless you and and your seed through your seed I'm going to bless every people group on the earth it's a it's a it's a wonderful promise and it's a promise that God is faithful to as we'll see later but in the moment it's a, it doesn't look very impressive in the moment you know God Abraham has to wait decades even before him and Sarah can have one child and and there's difficulty around the situation and then as things go on and um, this child Isaac marries to Rebekah. They then have um, Jacob and Esau. And through Jacob, the 12 sons of uh, Israel, which then become the 12 tribes. And then they go into Egypt, into captivity. God raises up Moses to rescue them out. And then you find another covenant made where God makes this covenant between the people of Israel and himself. Which is kind of like, in some senses, it's kind of like saying, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of what I made to Abraham. You're going to be a nation that will be a light the light of the world. You're going to be a nation that will shine out to all the other nations that as you serve me wholeheartedly, all the other nations around you who uh, worship gods of their own making, they will see what it looks like to worship the living God. They will see the, the shalom, the prosperity, the peace, the, the, the abundant life, the blessing that comes from living life God's way. As you do this, that's, that's, their, inher- that's their destiny as a nation, but they don't do it. They constantly join with other nations and, and try to join the worship of their gods together with the worship of the God. And it goes wrong and you find it in the book of Judges again and again. Again, cycles of disobedience and God has to deal with them. And then he raises up a judge to deliver them after they cry out for help. And then they go back into the same cycle. It's depressing. And it gets to the point where God even throws them out of their promised land. He says, I'm going to exile you. Even the land is spewing you out. 
You started to adopt vile practices. You're, you are offering up your children to the God Molech. You are doing the most awful things that wouldn't ever even enter my mind, God says. It's a sad, sad situation. And so throughout the Old Testament, you find these moments of hope. People like David, you go, wow, God makes this amazing covenant uh, with David, this, this shepherd boy, a man after my own heart. We go, oh, wow, we finally found a king, you know, who's going to lead God's people well. And then, and then uh, David falls into lust and murder. And so you get these hopes and then your, your hopes are dashed as you look to different nations, Israel and then different kings. And you think, ah, oh, no one's ever quite fulfilling it. Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. Now, the Bible is clear that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. The Bible is clear that Jesus is the prophet that Moses prophesied would come who would be just like him. The Bible is clear that Jesus is the Davidic king, the king who will sit on David's throne. The Bible is clear that Jesus is the choice vine, which was one of God's images for Israel. All of the promises of God are brought together and summed up and fulfilled in this one man. The Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfills everything. He's, he's the king who doesn't fall into lust and murder. He, he, he's, this, he's the true vine that, that doesn't wither and lead to disappointment, but bears extraordinary glorious fruit to God. He is all we could hope for, all we could have dreamed for. Jesus is the new and the final covenant head. Adam was the covenant head, which meant when Adam fell into sin, he took us all with him. And then you get these other sort of covenant heads and they, they kind of, they, they, they do what they can, but they never quite do enough. Now God is sovereign, which means that God is never surprised when these things happen. It means that God somehow meaningfully promises these things, but has a higher purpose whereby that promises will be fulfilled in ways that we never see uh, in these moments, but come through to full fruition in Jesus Christ. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ, which means that everything that God has promised to his people, you will find it fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which is why the Bible says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which means the Bible talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. There are depths, there are breadths, there are widths, there are dimensions to Jesus, which means you, can, you never get to the end of him. He, he, you, will, you will never be dissatisfied with him. Once you know Jesus by the Holy Spirit, you are set off on a trajectory of adventure and exploration that will keep you alive in God forever. It's, there's no end to him. Uh, and so we are very privileged, those of us that know him. But the point is with Jesus' covenant head is that he, he fulfills everything through his extraordinary obedience. He fulfills all of God's laws, he perfectly fulfills through his life. You see, very often, even I think it's the, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith, or one of those really famous ones, it goes straight from the birth to the death of Jesus, as if the life of Jesus is insignificant. Do you know what? It's really, really vital that Jesus lived the life he did. Because what Jesus was doing in his life was that he was fulfilling the law of God. The promise was made that whoever does these things will live. They will be considered righteous. So Jesus, through his fulfilling of God's law perfectly became considered righteous by his own works. No other human has ever done that. All of us fall short. None of us are perfect. Jesus fully, completely fulfilled the law of God, which meant that when he went to the cross, he went there as, as a righteous lamb without blemish. 
It wasn't just that he was born and he went to the cross. He, 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 he faced every temptation that you and I do and he came through it. He faced every, every pressure that you and I face to sort of give in, to be selfish, to be self-pitying, to be greedy, to be resentful, to be unforgiving. All these things that we know and that so often we fall at the first hurdle or the second hurdle or the third hurdle. He held fast in the power of the Spirit to the purpose of God, which meant by the time he got to the cross, he was described as this lamb without blemish, utterly righteous, utterly perfect. So he fulfills the positive side of God's law and then on the cross he fulfills the negative side of God's law where God says if you don't do these things then you will, you will be judged, you will be cursed. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And so at the cross Jesus is fulfilling the negative side of the law even though he never broke the law once. He dies on the cross for our breaking of the law. And so the, the atonement of our sins is paid for by the righteous one on the cross. You see, And what Jesus is doing here is that he is showing himself to be the perfect covenant head he's shown himself to be what the bible calls the second or the last adam he's shown himself to be the god's true new head of a humanity that will go into the next age he's he's saying this isn't just for me all that i am and all that i'm doing is for those who will be in me those who will be brought into me by faith that they may travel under my righteousness that they may travel under my holiness, that they may travel, that they may live, that they may be before God under all of the perfections that I am through what I've done. You see, it's an extraordinary moment. Now let's read Ephesians 2 together. One new man in Christ. Don't worry, that wasn't just the introduction and now the sermon's going to be. It was a very, very long introduction. The sermon won't be that long. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. So let's, let's look together. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start at verse 11. We'll read together to verse 18. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's particularly at this point, he's writing to the Gentiles. He's saying, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, that's the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's basically saying before Christ came before the, and before the cross, he's saying, those of you that are Gentiles, you've really got no history with God. The Old Testament is a story of really of God's dealings, really from Abraham really onwards with, or with, with the Hebrew people. He's saying the Gentiles, you, you, all you had was idols. That's your history. He's just being honest about it. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far oh, that's all right. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, here we go, one new man in place of the two. So make him peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both, that's Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 18 again. For through him, through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, all I want to do now is just pull out some implications, applications of the truth of this for everyday life. 
I'm not going to teach deeply, but I don't have time to go into huge depths on it. But I want to show the implications of what this here is teaching us. And I want to start, first of all, by macro. Looking at the, the world in macro. If you don't know what God's purpose is in creation, then that leaves you very vulnerable to things that come along that seem very attractive or, or that pull on your heartstrings <laughs> or that move you in some way, you can find yourself buying into it. Now, what is God's purpose in creation? Well, Ephesians 1.10 tells us, it says that it's God's plan in the fullness of times to sum up everything in Christ. So the Father's plan is to bring everything together under the headship of Christ. Okay. Now, most of us in the room are Christians. Most of us in here, we've, we're, we're disciples. Some of us in the room are probably not yet. You're still looking in, you're asking questions. But most of us here are probably believers. So when I say to you, it's the Father's will to bring everything together under Christ, you probably go, yeah, great. It's not like a huge revelation for you in that sense. It's not like a new thing you've never heard before. You probably say, yeah, I understand that. I, I get that. I, I, but let me, just, let me just help you to just um, maybe step back and understand that in a slightly broader sense. So we are discerning about what's going on in the world around us. Because all of us would, all of us would be really clear as Christians saying, we hate division, we hate murderous things, we hate the Cain and Abel, we hate, we hate seeing people against each other, we're Christians, we work for reconciliation, we work for forgiveness, we work for these things, amen? We all know that, there's a rousing amen, it wasn't very rousing but I know your hearts, there's a rousing amen, we hate to see people against each other, we work for peace, Jesus said blessed are the peacemakers, we, that's us, we, we sort of sign up to that, we know that that is, yes, that's something in our heart cries out to that uh, because that's kind of when people fall out and you know, relationships break down or marriages break down or people fall apart it's clearly negative it's clearly you go ah oh, something and you says this isn't right it's it's there to see and we want to make it better that's the Cain and Abel but there's another side what about the Babel side the Babel side is actually much more subtle because the Babel side is we're getting on great we're having a great time we're really enjoying being together, but with no reference at all to the Creator. No reference at all to God. Now that's a much more subtle thing to navigate. It's a little bit like, how can I just, it's a bit like the opening ceremony to the Olympics, London 2012. Anyone remember that? It was basically a celebration of that, exactly that spirit. It was a wonder. I mean, it was a wonderful spectacle, and, and I, I, I was there, and you know, I was excited about the games, and it was a, it was an amazing year for London. I think we had the Diamond Jubilees. It was just fantastic, wasn't it? It was, a, it was a great thing. So don't hear what I'm not. So I'm not sort of anti Olympics or anything like that. But there was an undercurrent with it. Uh, uh, the message is coming through, which was this sense of kind of unity, togetherness, harmony. We can do this together if we just break down the walls. We can, we, can, we can have a great time together. Uh, and it was a great Olympics. But there's a subtle message going on there whereby if you, if you really buy into that, then what you can end up doing is, is that you take the heart out of the thing, who is the one who made it all and who sustains it all. 
So there's, there's no reference there. Was no, there was no, did you notice that there was no reference to the Trinity in the opening ceremony of the Olympics? Any of you noticed that? Which we all like, sort of funny laugh at. Well, actually, every breath, every gift, every talent, every resource, every element of it belongs to him. So it actually was an absolute insult that there wasn't. But it's normal. It's so normal you might not even notice it. And so there's a, there's a discernment we need to grow in because if God's plan is to bring everything together under Christ, then what's Satan's plan going to be? Well, it's either going to be to destroy everything or to bring everything together not under Christ. And knowing his subtle scheming ways, it would probably be the latter because it's less obvious. Are you going to spot it? Are you going to be discerning? Or are you going to bind to it? I don't want to get all kind of weird and go, you know, all off piece with political predictions about this. I don't, I don't want to do that because I don't think I don't think we know the we know the, the details of these things. But I do know that Jesus Jesus rebuked at times people for having no sense of discernment in terms of understanding the times. So you don't you can said you can you know if you can read if it's a red sun at night you're going to have a nice day the next day but you've got no spiritual discernment of reading the times. We need to be wise. We need to be awake to these things. You need to be able to understand the big narrative behind certain things that go on. And and have some foresight. So, well, if we do this, where does this go? And that's why, although I'm all for championing things that are going to bring people together and all of that, I will never put my ultimate hope in those things. And always need to, to actually remember primarily what is our purpose. Well, it's his purpose, the Father's purpose, which is to bring everything together under Christ. And that's not in some vague, well, that's in an explicit way. It's under Christ. It's not some, some vague thing. So with things like, I don't know, multi-faith and other things like this, you've got to be discerning. You've got to be, you might say, let's all gather with other faiths because we want to stop people stabbing each other. Now, that's a really worthy cause. And there may be a place to gather with other groups and, and work on that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But be wise. Be discerning. Is, is this, at what point does, you, does it cross into something else where Jesus is kind of completely put to one side and it's just making things better? It's not the purpose of God. Much discernment needed. Now, we can't go into huge details with that now, but I just wanted to flag it so that we can be aware, God has revealed to us what his purpose is. That's the yardstick, that's the plumb line by which we measure all other things that come in. But then the second element, the final element about being one new man in Christ, is just to think a little bit about what does unity among God's people look like? Just to talk for this for a few minutes. What does unity as Christians look like? Because if God's plan is to bring everything together under Christ, then in this age the church who are God's people under Christ, how we act together becomes a prophetic signpost of what God's going to do in the whole of creation. How we are with one another, it's a signpost to God's ultimate purpose. If we are living in genuine, Holy Spirit-filled, under Christ's headship, unity, it will be a provocation in the Spirit. It will point to what God is going to ultimately do with the whole of creation. That's a powerful, powerful thing. 
Because if, you, if, if we do well under Christ's headship, it reflects on what Christ is like. If, if we're saying, Jesus can put you and me together, even though we've got nothing in common, we're saying something about Jesus. We're saying Jesus has got what it takes to bring even me and you together. We're saying Jesus is big enough. There's, there's enough about Jesus to bring us not just into the same room, but to join our hearts together. That's an extraordinary statement about Jesus. And what I will say is this is in an age where there's so many growing philosophies and ideologies about them. If you want to sum up in a nutshell what, is, what, what it is that is ultimately, uh, ultimately compared to Christ insufficient is that there's not enough in them. Only in Jesus is there enough to bring together everything in creation. That's the point. That's the point. So there are, there are movements that rise up and philosophies and ideologies that sometimes they, they grow out of um, negative things and they can sound really positive because they're a reaction to that. And they may not be wrong things, but if, you've, if you put your whole hope and trust in them, you will find out at some point they haven't got enough in them. They haven't got enough in them. They, they are not big enough. Only Jesus is big enough. And so there's just a few applications. Firstly, I would say for those of us who are Gentile believers here, that there is a, what Paul describes in, in, in Romans 11, he's talking to a church full of Jews and Gentiles and they're struggling to get on. <laughs> um, which was a, what a lot of stuff was written into in, in the New Testament. There was this, how does this thing work with Jews and Gentiles? And he just says in, in Romans 11, he just says, verse 17, he says, he's talking about this idea of, 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 the, of the vine and the branches and he says, um, he says to the, to the Gentiles, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, Gentiles, you were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, the, the, the Jewish olive root, don't be arrogant towards the branches. If you're arrogant, remember it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And what's happening in the church here is that the Gentiles are being arrogant towards Jewish believers, essentially saying, you know... Having, having an attitude of we're, 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 we're better now. We've kind of, we've overtaken you in the purposes of God. And, and Paul says that's not really what's going on here. It's much more complex than that. But we, what I would say is it's important that we do have an attitude of humility and not arrogance towards Jewish brothers and sisters. That's what Paul's teaching there. You know, those who are in Christ who are from Jewish, Jewish thing, we're one new man in Christ. Okay, there's not two tiers, it's one new man. But there's a, there's a respect of the story, of the history that's gone on, and we don't have an arrogant, we've kind of overtaken you now kind of deal. That's not, Paul says, no, don't do that. So we don't talk about that sort of stuff much, but Paul says it in there, and it's worth saying. And I think no matter what, how things play out politically, and particularly in the Middle East and all that, and it, things can get so charged that we just make sure, those of us here that are Gentile believers, that there's a sense in which, you know, that we're not adopting a, an arrogant stance towards Jewish believers. Does that make sense? It's not in us. I don't think there's any difficulty in that front, but it's just worth saying as part of this thing. The second thing is that we have a genuine concern for unity in Christ's church. So we care about it. That we care. It's not just, oh, we're rev. No, we're part of the body of Christ. And that matters. So it's not just we're a relational mission. No, we're part of the body of Christ. Jesus has got one church. Amen. He's got one church and, and even though you know, it's his plan to have many different local congregations and in his, in his largesse there's space for different styles and expressions. That, but at the end of the day there's only one church, there's only one people of God that will be gathered around the throne um, from every tribe, tongue and nation. And that we care about that somehow, we work out how to care about that, that, that it matters to us. We pray for other churches, we want to see them do well, we pray for other congregations, we, we, we look to work together wherever we can and express that because Jesus said didn't he um, 
He said in the, in the Gospel of John that you, the world will know you're really my disciples by the way you love each other. So if Christians are always falling out and criticizing one another and refusing to be in the same room together, then it's a bad witness to the world. Now we know that and I think, thank God he's given us a big heart and we have great unity with other brothers and sisters locally and internationally. I want to just encourage us, let's keep going. Let's keep going on that. Now, not at the expense of truth. You know, you've got to be discerning. You know, sometimes, you know, stuff starts getting believed and trusted in by people that call themselves Christians. And it's so, so kind of undermining of the gospel. You have to go, oh, I don't, we've got to work that one out because I can't fellowship. I can love you no matter what you believe. But I don't know if I can fellowship you if you're believing that because it's so anti the gospel. You see, you've got to be discerning and we've got to work that out. But our heart must always be to be joined together with those who truly love Jesus. Absolutely it must be. And then the final thing I want to end on is this, when it comes to one new man in Christ, is that we guard our own hearts against offence with other individual believers. That we guard our own hearts against holding on to unforgiveness and offence. It's a weird thing. It's a weird, weird thing. How can I describe it? It's like, I, I don't know how many times over the years I've been passionate, I've stood up in front of a church and I've said, guys, you know, things like this. If you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it, right? Stuff like that. Everyone laughs and chuckles because we all know we're imperfect. Or I'll say, guaranteed at some point someone will offend you. Everyone goes, oh yeah, we know that's true. But let me tell you this. When it happens, it's different. We can all nod to the theory, but when someone offends you, it's different. You understand what I'm saying? We, is there such a difference between theory and reality We all know, yeah, it's true, but I would say most of the time when people leave a church, you can often, maybe, I don't know, 90% of the time, trace it back to an offence that didn't get dealt with. Didn't get dealt with. What does the Bible say Christians should do when someone offends them? Well, it's interesting. I thought you'd all say forgive. That's not the first thing. It says tell them. It says tell them. And sometimes what we do is we don't tell them, we just jump to forgive them. You're bypassing telling them out of fear of man, cowardice, doesn't get dealt with. You've forgiven them in Christ, but you haven't really. And whenever that person says something, you niggle. You stop trusting them, you move away from them. The Bible said if someone sins against you, go and tell them so you can sort it out. How many times don't we do that? We've got to do it well, we've got to do it gently, but we've got to do it. This is real. Because it says in the Bible that sometimes it's the little foxes that destroy the vineyard. It's the little things running through. And the things build up. Little resentment here and then a little thing there. And then once once that's in your spirit, it's it's like it affects the way you see everything. You start to see it happening here and there when it's not even happening. But because you've, you've held on to this thing, it's satanic. It's powerful. Carrying niggles in your heart towards other believers. I remember there was a time when someone at Rev said something and it hurt me so much. I mean, no one would have known. You know, I carried on sipping my coffee and smiling. You know, but it hurt me so much. I was sitting there thinking, 
And I, and I, but I thought to myself, what am I going to do? And you know in that moment I had to work out, has this person sinned against me? Or has this person just hurt me? It's a difference, right? If, the, if they've sinned against me, I tell them. If they've just hurt me, I need to work out in a, in a diligent way why I'm just being really sensitive so I can sort it out in myself. Yeah? Not put it on them because they haven't sinned against me. You see what I'm saying? And I had to go through this process of saying, I'm not going to just... I'm not going to just bring this up because I'm hurt. I'm going to work it through. What is it? What is it? Is it? Was it that they were actually really careless in what they said and they need to know that? Or was it that I'm just really sensitive on that matter and I had to work it? I remember going jogs with, you know, you're going jogging just with the Lord. What is it? It really bothered me. About three or four weeks. I came through to the point where I realised, no, I think this is me. This is an area where I'm just a bit sensitive on that. No one would know, but I, I am on that particular side of things. So I... So I dealt with it with God, and, and things have been fine ever since, you know. But other times, you know, you do that process and you realise, no, they were out of order. And I need to gently find a way of letting them know. That is the business of the kingdom. That is not some little sideshow. That is the. Because you, you start getting relationships wrong, things start going wrong on a macro scale. People's motivation drops to invest in the church. People's motivation drops to, drops to serve one another. I don't want to be on a team with that person. All of that starts because you've not dealt with stuff in there. Above all else, the Bible says, guard your hearts, for from it flow the springs of life. If you're not looking at that, and particularly in relationship to relationship with others, I tell you, one way or another, you'll get caught out at some point. You're, some, you're, the, the, the springs of life will start to block. And you think, why am I flowing like I used to? It's ever so important, brothers and sisters. Please hear me on this. Please be courageous on this. Please learn to get through on this. For some of us, it's culturally fairly straightforward. For others, it's really foreign. Please engage with it. It's kingdom stuff. Okay, we must not be victims of our culture. Yeah, it's okay to be culturally who we are, but if you become a victim to it, i.e. it stops you getting into the fullness of the kingdom life, something's gone wrong. So please, 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 can we take that ever so, ever so seriously. I want to end just by reading Psalm 133 together, which is about unity, and just see, see what God says about this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. One new man in Christ. One new man in Christ. Jew, Gentile, different congregations, different individual believers. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. He was the, he was the priest. So it's the oil of anointing of God's spirit. It's like the Jew of Hermon. It's a mountain which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's a short psalm. It's a short psalm. But in it you've got oil and you've got dew or water, both of which represent the Holy Spirit. When there's a commitment to heart connection, when there's a commitment to really dealing with barriers in our, in our, in our lives with one another, when there's a commitment to that, the anointing of God flows. The anointing of God flows. I'll, I'll finish with one final exhortation from Mark where Jesus is teaching on prayer. And on Mark, it's, it's very all-encompassing what Jesus says. Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Sorry, 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone. 
so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. The purpose of talking to people when they've wronged you is so that you can forgive and reconcile. Never to just make a point or win an argument, it's to reconcile, it's to forgive. Anything against anyone. Anything against anyone. Jesus throws the net really wide. Anything against anyone. What about this? Yeah, anything. What about them? Yeah, anyone. That? Anything. Them? Anyone. Anything against anyone. Because when you've got those things in your heart, something doesn't work. Something doesn't flow. And the Lord wants us to flow. Amen. And Jesus has paid the price for all these things so that we can walk in this fullness of life and fullness of forgiveness. So maybe the musicians can come back. We're going to take bread and wine. One loaf, one cup. Not literally, I'm afraid. We've got two stations. But um, the, what we're saying here is, is that we are one body. We are one body. And our, our life as one body has come from the one body of Jesus, crucified for us. And our life, our covenant life together has come from his shed blood on the cross. Everything we have has come and flowed from the fulfillment of all of God's promises, Jesus Christ on the cross. Hallelujah. He is enough for us today. We are now one new man in him. God has started and kicked off a brand new humanity under the headship of Jesus. And it's going all the way to glory. Why don't we stand together? I'll lead us in prayer. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, let me tell you, the Bible says that God calls all people everywhere to change the way they think and to put their trust in Jesus. So if you've never done that, you can do that today. Change the way you're thinking about life, who you are, who God is, and put your trust entirely in Jesus. You will be delivered. You will be rescued. You will be saved. You will know new life. So Father, we bless your holy name. We thank you so much for the gift of your son. We are so grateful. Thank you that you've not just saved us to you, but you've saved us and joined us to one another. That we are one new man in Christ. Thank you that we are together with brothers and sisters. Thank you for our dear friends in other churches around you that we love so much. Our dear friends in St. Luke's and Chalk Farm and New Life and others, Lord, that we just love. We, we, we just bless them and love them. We want them to know your blessing and abundance, Lord. We really do, Lord. We, we love our fellow brothers and sisters in those churches. And we want to see them prosper. And we want to see the gospel do incredible things among them, Lord. And Lord, Father, we pray ever-increasing um, unity, even between Jew and Gentile, Lord. All the complexities of that, all the, all the layers of that and what's going on there, we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done and let this one new man that you've created demonstrate such splendor and, 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 and unity and, and beauty that it will become clear to a watching world that Jesus Christ is enough. Amen. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ will be seen. And many, many, many hearts will trust in him. And many lives will be saved, we pray.